0: Hey everyone, this is your host, Gans, and welcome to another episode of the C-Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what's going on in European technology. My guest today is Natalie Novik, a sociologist and quantitative social scientist, working on research to understand the social aspects of a startup community. For the past five years, she has been conducting fieldwork with entrepreneurs and community builders, starting in Santiago, Chile, in 2015. Since then, she has lived and worked in 27 different countries and experienced the startup community firsthand. In this conversation, we discuss the global startup ecosystem, startup visas, working with early stage founders, the role of government in innovation, and much, much more. Having worked with thousands of entrepreneurs, the European Commission, national governments like Startup Estonia, and organizations like TechEU and Startup Boost, Natalie has a very unique perspective on the European technology ecosystem. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hey Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the Seat Table podcast. I've been meaning to have this conversation for a while, so I'm very happy to have you here.
1: Oh, well, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much, Guns, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So I'm fascinated by the concept of edge, which is like this weird intersection of skills and interests and background that makes anyone unique. And you sit at this very specific intersection between tech, academia, and government. Was that a conscious decision? And what do you see from there that most of us, uh, are missing?
1: You know, I, I think this is a, a fascinating concept. and also something that is is really from everything that I've done, you see these different sectors, so academia or research, business or tech and government, all of these things are really well connected, but they haven't necessarily been examined from this vantage point. So oftentimes you have researchers that are looking at government and looking at it in an isolated way, or they're looking at tech business in a very isolated way. And I've really tried to synthesize a number of different perspectives from from where I'm coming from. So I'm a social scientist and a sociologist. And what that means is that I'm someone that studies kind of these connections within society. So the social constructs that make up our lives and how we're acting, um, finding meaning, finding value as individuals, but also cultures and as communities. And that's kind of where I've kind of approached looking at how all of these connections happen
0: from roughly 2015 or 2016 you've lived and worked in 27 different countries and experienced a bunch of different startup communities firsthand Uh, starting with Santiago right how how did that first landing felt and and why Santiago
1: so what draw me to uh, Santiago was because of the Startup Chile project. So that started um, in 2010, around that time, um, and was really getting going. And I was working um, on a number of economic development initiatives. And we were really interested in the university as looking at what does the future of innovation look like? How do you create the infrastructure of the conditions that lead to innovation and what Santiago and what Chile was doing was something that no one else was doing at the time. They were real pioneers. And I think that we really need to kind of give them a lot of credit for what they did there. And they were the ones that came up with the first startup visa program. And I was like, you know, I really need to see what's happening there and why they've taken this approach. And Santiago is so fascinating because it's on the bottom of the world from a lot of what's happening and tech innovation, all of these things. I mean, they're so distant from that. And they really were thinking outside the box when it came to policymaking. And I wanted to see that firsthand. So that's why it was my first stop and really kind of arriving and trying to soak up everything like a sponge. I mean, I didn't come from a very technical background. I have um, a lot of research skills, but I wasn't an entrepreneur. But kind of finding myself in that environment and kind of having that perspective as an outsider really gave me the opportunity to have a lot of incredible insights. And that kind of really got the ball rolling and hasn't really stopped since then.
0: Yeah, the the Startup Chile program was very interesting from a policy standpoint, but also from a venture capital standpoint, because they did 40k and it was equity free, if I remember correctly.
1: That's right. And it really was an and what's kind of interesting, it was kind of this hybrid between a private initiative and a public policy. So the government wasn't involved so terribly much with it, but they were working with a number of private investors and kind of business leaders to really try to create something different and something new. And uh, they've the policy have, has changed and kind of the, the program has changed over time but you've seen some really exciting things in terms of jumpstarting, not necessarily a startup community or a startup ecosystem, but really fostering this entrepreneurial imagination. I mean, it was impossible to go anywhere in Santiago without people knowing what the Startup Chile program is, talking to taxi drivers, random baristas at the airport. Everyone knew about what was what was happening and kind of creating this feeling that, entrepreneurship and tech is something and startups that's something that we should be involved in and the excitement for it, it was just really infectious and you could see it even at that time i remember going to a founders institute kind of meetup when i was in chile and it was absolutely bursting at the gills. Like every, like so many people were trying to get in to be a part of what what this was all about. They didn't know if this was something, but this was something that they, the community was offering. So let's see what it's all about. It was just, it was fascinating how many people wanted to be a part of something. And that's what really kind of sparked my, my kind of, path to the discovery of like, I need to know what is exciting these people so much, because this is a really tough, a tough gig. And everyone is so enthusiastic about it. Um, it's impossible not to want to learn more.
0: Uh, speaking of learning, like, what are some of the unexpected lessons from working or being related to so many countries?
1: I think one of the biggest kind of learnings, but kind of observations. It's somewhat the question comes from a question that a lot of folks ask me about my work. And it's always, what are some of the biggest differences you see in founders from um, this place to that place or in this country or in that country? And I think really, um, it goes to the heart of it is that you know, there's actually a lot more, founders have a lot more in common with one another than, than they have different. It doesn't matter what the country they come from. And I think often when we think about venture and looking at opportunities, there's always this kind of perception of, you know, some places are more emerging or developing startup ecosystems or not. But really, founders from kind of very different geographies and really share a lot in terms of how they see themselves as entrepreneurs, the types of things that they're doing and the kind of activities they're involved in. The, the But the main difference is really kind of what resources they have available to them. And that really does change a lot of their trajectory. But, you know, I, I mean, my case design for for my, my research um, really looked at two chiefly this most different Case selection. So taking Berlin um, and Athens as kind of if you look at every kind of demographic, the outside of them being European capital cities on a number of different social and cultural aspects and kind of world value survey, they're almost polar opposites in a lot of ways. But founders from both of these places, the way they talk about what they do and how inspired they are and who motivates them and all these different things, they actually are quite similar and their values are are really durable with one another. And it's it's really incredible to see that, you know, They actually have more in common with one another than people who might actually be living in their local community that aren't entrepreneurs, that aren't involved in this tech community. And that's where you see that, you know, this is a global movement. This is a transnational identity. This is something that goes beyond um, kind of the national. Um, And that's been a really big finding from, from my work.
0: Yeah, there's something you, th- you said to me in a previous chat that really resonated with me, uh, which is a founder from Greece has more simul- similarities than a founder from the U- uh, yeah than a founder from the UK than a regular guy in Greece, and that that resonated because it articulated a problem. I mean, not a, it's not really a problem, but something I've been seeing on my end. So. Mo- I'm originally from Argentina and most of my friends in Argentina are not in tech. And the people I meet in Argentina, they're not in tech. So I can't, I can't even explain what I do, right? So if I meet someone in, in tech, so what do you do? Yeah, so I do growth. I also have a newsletter and a podcast and it's, it's that's all you need to say, right? And here, like what I tend to say is, oh, I'm a lawyer because it's a lot easier than to, to explain what growth is and what a podcast is. So yeah, when I chat with my friends and let's say over Zoom in whatever Berlin, I don't experience that. So it's it's I don't know, it's it's very weird for me. No,
1: but I and I think it is very very common, and especially kind of feeling talking um, with other people in this community. There's this kind of feeling that we're in a bubble or maybe not so well understood. And I can give you a really great example. Is you know I was at I was at Web Summit a number of years ago and I was connecting with, with startups there that I had met from being around in the ecosystem. And one of them, um, so I got kind of a message on on the, the chat, the meetup app, and it's like, hey, come down to our booth, I would love to meet you. Um, someone told me a lot about you. So I go down there and it was these two young Greek founders. They're 17 and 18 years old. They had built a hardware product um, and they were encouraged to go to Web Summit. And I was meeting them and I was like, learning about their story. And I found out it was the first First time either of them had ever been on a plane that had ever left Greece, and I was like, "Wow, what must this be like?" Because now you're in this hall, showcasing your startup with like seventy thousand other people. That I mean, it's an overwhelming environment for anyone. And they said to me, "You know, these are our people." These are our the people, no one understands what we do at home or kind of exactly the sentiments that you're sharing. These are people I feel like I I can talk to them. I know um, where they're coming from, where they're thinking. And that was kind of a light bulb moment. It's like, yeah, you know, they have never been away from home before, but they felt at home in this hall with all of these other people because they think the same way and they approach what they do in the same way, and that was just such a really special moment um, for them to have that experience, because you know, you know, you're not alone. Um, this is part of something that is so much bigger, and and kind of looking at yourself more in this global mindset than maybe a local one, um, especially in these times, um, it re- really kind of kind of takes that home for me.
0: So there's this famous Peter Thiel question uh, that goes something like. What things you believe that the rest of the world doesn't agree with? And for you it seems to be, or based on our previous chat, is that your belief is that there's one single global startup ecosystem and not a bunch of like sub ecosystems. Can you unpack that for me? Because I think it's very interesting.
1: Sure. So if we I mean, there is a lot of different people understand what a startup ecosystem is in a lot of different ways. People talk about it in in many different ways. And from my perspective, I look at an ecosystem as a complex system of institutions and structures that help support building startups. And so looking at support is not just financial support, but it's also social, cultural, all these different things that you need, these tools to build a successful company. So it's tools like you sitting in Argentina, reading a quote from Peter Thiel, who's German and he <laughs> based in Silicon Valley, being inspired by those people, kind of recognizing that this is something that is not just bounded within a, a certain country and i think uh, it's unfortunate but but maybe kind of a casualty of the way things often are is that you know countries and regions are often the ones that are trying to champion their local startup communities and kind of really trying to be able to have all the infrastructure to build global companies within kind of their their own geographies. And I think that that's a real challenge because you often see, you know, companies are scale. These are global, global companies that are looking for um, a global market. So kind of trying to expect them to utilize all the resources that are geographically bounded is a really poor way of of looking at how we can support them better and you know a lot of times it's it comes down to credit claiming we want to be able to create all this infrastructure to build global companies but really, global companies need to utilize resources no matter where they are. And I think one of the, the the key things there is the Stripe Atlas program, which a lot of European companies utilize. But also really successful initiatives like a startup Estonia has created, kind of the digital citizen, like so many different things. And you see founders being strategic about it. And 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 I think that's how. We can, we can, especially as communities, be able to serve founders better by not keeping things so geographically bounded and, and really encouraging them to, to make um, use of the best resources, no matter where they are.
0: You mentioned um, startup or global startup ecosystems as a complex system. Um, what sort of ingredients should we think about when building those ecosystems or when fostering those ecosystems?
1: So I think the the one that everyone um, always comes down to is funding. Um, Funding is really, especially if you think about a startup as a small company that wants to be a big company. How you do that depends on a lot, a number of things, but investment is one of them. Um, Another one is talent. So human capital and looking globally for human capital gives you a lot more options than if you're just looking locally. But if you can look globally for financial capital to grow the business, you have a lot more options. Unfortunately, a lot of policies limit how companies can accept investment, private investment, or even kind of different types of crowdfunding or um, equity support. So that encourages companies to go places like headquarters in Delaware, where Different sorts of financing mechanisms are well-known. Five VCs and and I think that those are kind of the the two the two most important important aspects is as kind of people um, but also money and being able to look at a global at a global market for both those things is often um, much more successful than if you're looking only within a certain geography.
0: But money itself, like it doesn't fix all problems. It only fixes money problems, right? Other than just human capital or, or what I like to call talent and, and, and money, wh- what other ingredients do you think are, are key for fostering this, this ecosystems? like, I don't know, government or, or universities or organizations? like is there anything that you, like, you think it's key?
1: So I think there, there are two sides of this and um, really is kind of a social and a cultural side. The social side is about having a community of people that are there or to support you, to encourage you, to connect you to that where that next step is. And that community doesn't, and I strongly believe And that doesn't have to be a local one for you. When um, we launched our startup boost global platform, we had over 250 founders from all over the world connecting and um, supporting one another. Running a startup can be isolating, It can, and it's gonna be always very difficult, no matter where you are. But if you have people that are around you that can support you and be that person or to kind of, at the end of the day, tell you to keep going, to be that cheerleader, to encourage you, having those people, even if it's just family and friends that kind of are on your side, that is so important. And then the other aspect, the cultural aspect, um, we can look at this as this kind of entrepreneurial imagination. And this is something that I think hmm. is described in a lot of different ways, but it's this idea that it's okay to try. And that it's okay to take that risk to try something. And in a lot of places, especially when you don't have a very strong social safety net, it's very difficult to be able to have the means to be able to even think about trying, trying to do something. And I can kind of give you an example to tell you, kind of indicate a little bit how, how this might look like. So I was a, talking with a um, highly, highly skilled back end developer um, from Ukraine um, at an event a number of years ago. And they were, they um, at that time, he was working um, basically as this outsourced tech team. And he's like, but Natalie, I have this idea about having a company. And the company would be like this. And it was a kind of a, a B2C SaaS product. Um, really, really exceptional. Really, really well specified. Like he had thought about everything. And I was like, you could build this. You have all the talent. You could do this. You could do it. Uh, why, why wouldn't you do it? And he's like, he's like, you know, I just don't feel like I could do that. There's no one, I don't know anyone um, that, that's ever done it, even though they've been consulting successfully and working, helping other people build their dream products. He just didn't have the um, kind of feeling that it was something, an option that was available for him. And there are a number of different reasons why you can kind of, that might've been it. But I think there's this, also this cultural side that to encourage people to feel like it's okay to try. And that's something that, that can be hard in a lot of places, um, especially for founders from under-networked or underrepresented backgrounds that don't have that, that's, that opportunity. They don't have that support and also that encouragement and kind of that infrastructure around them socially and culturally that it's okay to do this. Another example, really um, incredible founder. Um, his family came from East Asia, migrated to Scandinavia. He built um, a real. He he left a medical school to start to start a company. He had this idea for starting a company for a long time. He's like, I'm going to do this thing, and his family didn't talk to him for eight years until he raised his first million euros. They wouldn't talk to him because he. Um, they kind of just excommunicated him from the family because he wasn't following the path that that they that they saw as a successful one and I think for a lot of founders those are things that they're up against and it you have to be incredibly brave to be able to to take that and to, to have have that support that can allow you to to foster that entrepreneurial imagination and not everyone has has that um, available to them and I'd love to make that more accessible to to more people.
0: That was going to be my, my sort of follow up question. How can we plug more of these people into the global startup ecosystem? Thinking about the guy in Ukraine who had no idea that that he could actually do that, right? How? Because I'm sure that's those are just two examples of many.
1: Yeah, um, and I think there. It, it, And you know what maybe the most important thing to come away from is there is no one-size-fits-all solution and i think oftentimes we're looking for solutions or answers that are tidy that fit um kind of really can make the most broadest impact um, for the most people but Entrepreneurship and building a startup is such a unique process for every single person, and I think there's so much variation between what resources uh, each of us, maybe as founders, come to the table with individually. So, how can we kind of make that accessible to more people? Well, you kind of are start. You start early. You start a lot earlier. And I think that's been a really big challenge of public policy has been looking, let's support these startups, especially in Europe. Let's support startups that are already making it to help them with growth capital or help them to scale. Actually, no, you should be thinking about how can you widen that funnel really early on so that a lot of young people feel like it's okay to think entrepreneurially, to think about becoming founders. And I think one, one of the really uh, nice, and it can be even small things, of course, I think one of the best startup policies globally is uh, the Finnish education system, which really kind of from a very young age encourages young people to be critical thinkers, to think in a way that is not just committed to a rubric or some prescriptive goal. And you have really bright people that come out of that education system, which is recognized in a lot of metrics as being one of the best in the world, that think critically, that think independently, and that position them really well to be able to exist in a society that is changing really rapidly. And that's one example. Another example um, is different events, such a web summit, I'll, I'll mention them again, working with the Portuguese government to offer young people entrance to that event, to come in, to see what that's like, to even be exposed to it. I remember when I was growing up, um, where I grew up, Um, was next to um, Intel, one of the world's biggest um, tech companies um, building hardware and, and chips and all of that. We had no idea what went on inside there. Becoming an entrepreneur, working with tech was never something I was exposed to. Didn't know anyone that was doing that. So never really having any sort of access point of knowing that that's available. But the earlier you can get people, the earlier you can support founders or people that are thinking about doing something. It's not maybe in high school education, secondary education, that's where you can really start to kind of create that feeling of, you know, this is something that I can do. And that's why I love policies like what um, Startup Portugal has done and Germany has done with their exist program, which is if someone has an idea, um, we will help f- support a a safety net for them to try it out. Um, these are kind of baby ideas that might be startups; they might not be found, might not end up becoming a startup, but it's not particularly means tested in that it's validated by a consortium of this is going to be a successful thing. It's, you know, we're going to help support this to maybe be an idea and give you the chance to try. And not enough people have access to resources that will allow them to try and to maybe not succeed, but to at least have the opportunity to make something not a side project, but make it a main project.
0: There's so much to unpack there, but before I start, sort of going into different rabbit holes, um, do you think this is a global problem or a European problem? Because so you're from the US, I'm from Argentina. I also spent quite a bit of time in the US, and the, the US has this sort of cultural thing where being an entrepreneur is is an acceptable career path, not just acceptable but celebrated, right? And in Argentina, it's it's different. But you sort of if you sort of if you want a great life, you have to be an entrepreneur because there's no career path you can follow, right? So, but, but for those two different reasons, like being founders is celebrating. In Europe, it's, it's not like that, right? There are so many alternatives that...
1: You know, I, I will push back against that a little bit. And especially the U.S. is not a monoculture and that, you know, it's cel- globally celebrated to start something. It is in some places with some, not everyone has the same access to be able to start something or to even be encouraged to start something. I grew up, the family I grew up in, becoming a entrepreneur or starting a business never would have been a career path anyone would have wanted for me. I, I and, and maybe part of the reason that I never decided to become a founder. I didn't have access to that. And also you see such a variation across across the country where that is kind of seen as acceptable versus not as acceptable. And I think in Europe also you have the same things, um, depending on where you are. In different places like Scandinavia, becoming an entrepreneur, or starting a company, or working with technology, this is a very celebrated kind of kind of such path. And there is different resources available to do that. And I think the idea is that you know not everyone has the same access to to those to to that kind of support and. And I think like we can unpack that a little bit, that you know, it's not just one country or another country where it's good or bad. It's that you know it all exists within shades of gray and variation, and not everyone has equal access or equal opportunity. And you think especially immigrant societies or places where you have high level of immigration. A lot of people in those places turn to entrepreneurship or turn to starting businesses because they were forced out of traditional types of career paths. And that's something why you see a higher percentage. But especially if you look at the U.S. now, when it comes to small business generation, it is some of the worst that we've ever seen in years. So the last 10 years or so, small business development in the United States has fallen considerably. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from one another, no matter where we are. Um, and nowhere, nowhere has really gotten it right.
0: One thing I wanna take from this conversation is that things are not as black or white as I usually think. Like there are shades of gray and our brains try to sort of create this one-size-fits-all solutions when they're like, it's really more of like spectrums or like nuances that I usually miss. So thank you for, for that. I want to sort of take us back to something you, you mentioned a bunch of time, which is uh, immigration and startup visas and the roles that those sort of programs play in entrepreneurship. So you've worked with the European Commission and a number of local and national governments on how to better support their ecosystems, right? So, and you did a lot of work around immigration. Um, what do you think are the key ingredients of a successful uh, startup visa?
1: So I think a a successful startup visa really is something that can, can be hard to get right and also something that countries, you've seen so many really interesting examples from Latvia to France to Denmark to Spain, Italy, so many countries in Europe have been, have been trying it. And I think that's one of the important kind of takeaways is that experimentation is something that's necessary. You have, as a policymaker who wants to attract entrepreneurs, you have to think, like an entrepreneur, which means you have to think about friction—what kind of prevents people um, from from doing certain doing certain things—and um, and also kind of how can you take friction away from founders. It is very hard to move to an entirely new country to start a business. It's one of the kind of key puzzles that I came to Europe to study because starting a business is one of the riskiest things that you can do. Also, lots and lots of research from business schools for many years says, Businesses are more successful when you start them in places where you have dense networks. So moving internationally to start a business is like one of the most kind of, not. it sounds on the surface, one of the most nonsensical things you can do. But if kind of going back to our earlier conversation, well, actually maybe there's more people in this country that are connected because we're thinking the same way. It's kind of, is, is one of one of the key findings. So a, st- a successful startup visa really, it depends on this experimentation. And you've seen how European countries over the last 10 years or so, they've been trying out startup visas, changing the policies. So Ireland, when they started theirs, they asked that you had a really high amount of startup capital. No founder would have that. So they changed it. France has done something really interesting where they had this kind of concierge that helped to kind of come into France. And I think that's that's a really great policy um, that they've tried Some Something Estonia has done really, really well is kind of created this, this huge media and branding about, you know, this is an entrepreneurial country. There are people like you that are thinking like you here. We are also thinking like you. And they have such a great support for international founders. You know, I was there when we put started this foreign founders media. They since rebranded it to something um, that's more inclusive. I think it's international founders. But it kind of de- created this infrastructure. So that when you arrive, you're not arriving as this alien that has no one, but, you know, you already know what networks you need to tap in, you know, who the key personnel are. And for everyone, there's going to, that may be interested in moving to um, a, a different country to start a business. There's no, of course, one size fits all. There might be different reasons. So that's why I think it's great that Europe has created all these different policies that kind of prioritize different types of movement so that founders that are looking at Europe as a possible destination for um, their business can really kind of choose what works best for them.
0: What do you think the European Commission isn't working on something like this sort of on a pan-European scale, particularly now where there's this opportunity, that the U.S. is becoming more inwards, right? Every single day from everything, not just canceling like H-1B visas, like rest on, on every single move. So why do you think the commission is not working on something like this?
1: So it's, it's, it's really simple, is that migration policy is something that is devolved um, entirely to national governments. So... Kind of coming at it from a supranational level would be um, very challenging because it does kind of step on the toes of state rights so states that is kind of one of your your kind of most enshrined objectives as a state that that you kind of control who has entry. but what's kind of nice about different policies such as the blue card is something that they have been advocating. Um and Germany has been really kind of in the forefront of using the blue card as a tech talent um sort of a sort of mechanism, and they they have been been very friendly to those things like having a a pan european startup visa would would be an incredible thing, but I think it is something that may be a bit uh, far off. We have to see states devolve a few more of their powers before that happens.
0: It's interesting how existing structures and maybe the sort of the accumulated accidents that come from years and years of just developing, uh, get us to a place in which things that should be happening are not happening just because of that, I don't know, just rambling about government.
1: Yeah. And I think, and maybe it's also a good point that, you know, oftentimes government sees, you know, we have to create something to... Encourage people to do different sorts of initiatives, so to to spur different different types of action. But oftentimes, when you're creating more policy and kind of, you're also creating more red tape and you're creating more bureaucracy, and you're actually making it even harder uh, for people to get stuff done. When oftentimes they should be going back to the drawing board. What can we actually take away that's making it harder for these things to happen? What? Can we take away so that we don't have founders putting their companies in Delaware while still working out of Paris? I know so many examples of this happening, but they're not thinking that way. It's always like you know we want to have a policy that's something that we can put our name to, rather than you know oh we took away all this different regulation um, that at one time was very hard fought for. So it it this is a really interesting dynamic that it makes sense to approach to kind of see these overlapping circles of business and tech, um, how they fit together because they are so um, intertwined with, with the government institutions.
0: Have you thought about how these visas need to be structured, like specifically? Because I, I have. i have been thinking about this quite a bit uh, due to my my day job and, and seat table. Like for instance, right? When I think about a startup visa, I think about it. first, you got to sort of, Uh, break it down into two, employees and founders. So those are two different groups. And each visa needs to to be different for each. So for instance, for employees, you need to have very fast processing times because otherwise companies are not going to hire from abroad. And I see that all the time. I speak to probably a dozen HR teams every week. And that's their main concern, right? Their engineering, like their head of engineering, can't wait for an engineer for six months, which is something that we see, let's say, in Spain. Other thing for employees is, for instance, you shouldn't require a diploma, for instance, like a college degree, because most engineers, again, there are many like they were born with a keyboard in their hands, but they decided for a bunch of different reasons, including me. Right, I'm a college dropout, uh, not to do college. Uh, for instance, have you thought about those things?
1: Definitely, and and you can see how different sorts of criteria such as kind of time limits or kind of different kinds of credentialing does prevent, kind of creates these red tape and kind of creates this friction that we were talking about. And it's also an example of why Canada has been one of the kind of forerunners when it comes to uh, creating um, a, a visa policy that works really excellently for tech talent. Um, And I know um, Carol Lee and the whole Javadical team has really been really working hard to kind of make this a reality in Europe. And it's been really fascinating to watch um, that transition. But that maybe is a conversation for another time. But when we're talking about founders, it's really challenging because you often have immigration officers or people from the economic development ministry evaluating startups to determine if founders can receive a visa. And that process in all of the different cases that I've I've studied, which is all the different cases in Europe for ever since um, they started here, it's all a very opaque process. You have really um, no idea why you would be denied or why you would be accepted. And that I think for a lot of founders that are considering moving their companies uh, across borders, that's something that they do see as being something um, that is really, really difficult because you have to put a lot of share a lot of your financials with a foreign, a foreign country. You don't necessarily um, see why you were denied or why you were approved. I've had uh, private conversations with some of the folks that approve or deny or evaluate these things. And sometimes you would be really surprised at their reasons of why they would say no. and oftentimes these immigration officials, they know nothing about startups or they have no idea if this and also it's a very volatile type of business. It may be a success story. It may not be. Um, should that be something that that we include in our admissions criteria, I think that's something that's very hard to judge. And I and I don't think anyone has really been able to, to do it particularly well. But I know in the Netherlands and in Denmark and different countries have used third parties as kind of intermediaries. So an accelerator program or a VC um, can kind of say, like, give their stamp of approval. But... There's so much of an unknown with a startup and and also kind of recognizing that, you know, it, it is a big risk to, to come to a new country to uh, bring your company there. But also recognizing that, hey, you know, they're willing to try. This person looks like a legitimate person um, and kind of being open to that. And you've seen over time, a startup visas have become more predominant in Europe. That they have become more open, more inclusive, more available in ways that people maybe ten years ago um, would never have qualified for. This is something that that is changing. So I think it is changing for the better. It's for some folks, I. I know some really uh, prominent case that sticks out to me is from a young person from Iran who um, was just kind of like your experience. He started um, a tech company in high school and was working with a number of uh, his friends um, on building this tech company and was like desperate to get an Estonian startup visa so he could get out of Iran. But he was too young to apply. So, of course, you'll never be able to find, uh, and the startup did seem like it was pretty promising. had it had some good traction for all the all the um, difficulties that that they were building under. But I think you'll never be able to find that perfect policy for for everyone. But really recognizing that if people want to make a commitment, want to come to your country to start something and to maybe to continue this business that they've developed, that's something that really should be celebrated. And we should do um, everything we can to kind of cherish those people that are willing to, to take that risk and to make that sacrifice to do that.
0: I'm going to pull us out of the startup visa rabbit hole and, and take us to your PhD. So you're a researcher and essentially, well, actually, walk us through your dissertation thesis and then we can use that as a foundation to go into a bunch of different places.
1: So my my dissertation looks chiefly at the social practices of entrepreneurship. So how what are happening in the social landscape of being a founder? All of those things that are outside the direct running um, of your business. And, and what you see, kind of things like, like this conversation, for example, or going to a tech event, or kind of the different types of connections that you're making as a founder, those are the types of things that I analyze and examine. Um, and also something that is uh, very prominent in that is kind of this going back to the conversation on the entrepreneurial imagination. So what are the values that we celebrate, that we kind of elevate through different events or in the things that we do? So looking very much at this social space, what are people doing that connects us socially as as founders and why is that important? And you really see that successful companies and successful founders are not made in a vacuum, they're not made one person sitting at a computer, they're made in a social space. So all of the people that you connect to, that you um, kind of share with, the way you communicate, all of those things are what what I um, investigate in, in, my, in my dissertation and also kind of looking at the different value mechanisms of the types of people in the startup community. So looking at what motivates them, kind of have four, four main categories. So there's a business financial side, people, human capital side, creative communicator side, and a builder uh, engineer side. And all of these different types of skills, um, they are motivated by, by different sorts of things. So it really kind of goes back to that point that startup communities really need to help support a number of different types of p- people. And oftentimes you see policymakers are looking to support different, um, one very singular idea of who a tech person looks like. Well, actually, it's people like you, it's people like me, it's lots of different kinds of people make this, make this whole thing move. And looking at that, you know, it is not a black and white thing. And that's kind of a, a big overview about the theory, but it really concentrates on this three uh, city case study between Berlin, Athens, and Tallinn, um, but really peppered with all of my experiences all across Europe and talking so many different different things. Kind of go, have gone into it, but it's an ethnographic study. Um, it's taken me several several years now to to kind of get to the final stage, but it's always I I had such a hard time getting out of the field because there was always something new to explore and something new to discover. And once I kind of, you see see things when you first arrive from a certain perspective, the longer you're there and the connections that you make and the networks that you're able to come into, you have the chance of seeing things from a different perspective. So really, um, there's so much more to learn, but you have to kind of cut it off at a certain point. But it's been such a pleasure to really be able to share these insights that I think, yeah, I, I feel feel very fortunate to do that. Because as you know, and um, through the conversations that you've had uh, there from the media has a very kind of specific way it likes to talk about founders. There's a certain archetype. That celebrated, right, or vilified, but it's all very kind of monolithic. And it's not like that. And those of us that are in um, this space and those of you listening to the podcast, of course, you know that it's all different types of people that are drawn to this work. And really being able to shed light on that diversity and to shed light on really the challenges that folks have um, to be in this work And what we can do to support them. That's what really drives me to do this work.
0: I'm curious, why those three cities? Why Berlin, Athens, and Tallinn?
1: So you could really take a study, do a study like this um, from lots of different places, but When you're deciding your case selection, you need to make a kind of certain justification. And as I mentioned earlier, I was using a certain structure called the the most different type of case selection. So looking at places that are very different from one another and then seeing and then when you see similarities, even despite these differences, those similarities are significant and that kind of indicates that there is something going on or there is something special but it's really kind of drawn from so many other places and that's why i tried to get very good coverage from across europe and spend a lot of time in a lot of different places so that i really was sure that the things that i was seeing and the results that i was finding were very robust
0: What are some of the similarities and and some of the hidden biases or vices you see repeated in these ecosystems?
1: So the similarities, I think we we we've talked about um, these a little bit before about how um, founders are kind of have a very similar mindset. But I think what what's different um, between these cases is obviously size. Of course, is one thing. In a big city like Berlin, you just have more of everything, and you actually, when it comes to communities, you're able to sustain a lot more differences, uh, different types of communities. And you also have a lot of opportunities to create kind of a community for yourself and create an event and to find people to come to different things. Whereas in a a smaller place like Athens or Tallinn, it's a lot harder to create something new because a space is limited, is more limited there but also you're very visible and that can be both a good thing if you're trying to promote something or to create something, but also can be, can be a harder thing because it requires that sustainability. What I think really is kind of one of the most um, interesting findings for me, uh, it, Athens has taught me a lot about entrepreneurship and startup communities, maybe, maybe more so um, than anywhere else, because it's one of those places that it has this perception in Europe that there's not a lot going on there. But what you find when you go there is that you're building a startup in a really difficult place. It's you know, We're not so far removed from the crisis there. And you have incredibly talented, well-trained engineers and developers there really, really smart people that are so generous with their time with sharing, being open. And you have a really thriving um, development community there. And so you really see kind of builders and engineers, why they come together in a tech community is very different than than how founders and more business-minded people come together. So they're driven by problem solving. They're driven by this kind of drive to create. And being an engineer or developer, it's such a humbling experience because it's a challenging thing. Um, And you have to connect to people because if you don't, sometimes there's problems you just can't solve on your own. So you have this spirit of sharing um, in Athens that is very special, and you see people helping one another out and kind of recognizing that, you know, there are just less resources here. There, it is a challenging place. So you have people kind of really going out of their way to, to help one another in ways that, um, that you might not see elsewhere where it's harder. Um, and you, it's also a very homogenous startup community, um, so that also facilitates a certain level of sharing too. But it, it, it's such an incredible place, and I really encourage a lot of people to, to check it out. Especially um, the development community there is really exciting. Tallinn is also a very special place too. Um, I spent a lot of time in Tallinn, also Riga, um, and in Vilnius, so a good slice of the Baltics. But why? talent is special is you have really a government supported startup ecosystem in a way that you don't elsewhere. And what's really exciting about the government infrastructure that is supporting the startup ecosystem is it takes pressure away from the local community for different sorts of activities, because you do have this government arm that is taking care of a number of different parts about kind of really being this voice for the entrepreneurs and for the founders. And that was a very interesting thing to see. And it is very responsive to founder needs and, kind of we did this project with Startup Estonia in 2018, where we really kind of surveyed the whole startup ecosystem. And we talked with as many people as we could to really understand the challenges, the pain points, what they like, what they're proud of. And the government took all of that information, all of that data and that whole research process, they really took that to heart to try to build a policy and support mechanisms to help create a better startup community for everyone. They're listening, they're learning. And because it's such a small place, you actually can get very good coverage there and you actually can um, really get connected with all the people that you would need to. And that was such a really exciting experience to really see this interplay between a startup community and a government infrastructure working together to, hey, let's build the best startup community in Europe and we're gonna do it together. That's what was so exciting. About Tallinn and and kind of you see really a, a very very different, very strong differences between all of those places and that's why they were kind of really special to study.
0: Tallinn is is very close to my heart. It's it's one of my favorite cities in Europe. Um, so you're from from the outside, right? Uh, or from my perspective, you're like a force of nature. <laughs> you juggled a lot of projects and a bunch of different things. So research, advising governments, podcasting work uh, for at the same time and, and with very little resources. So there are a few things I want to get out of this. But first, like, do you have any frameworks for time management or resource allocation?
1: So maybe... <clears throat> This is this is a hard hard question um, for me because the resources you're right the resources that I had were very little so I basically got one grant when I started my research in 2016 and I basically that grant was very small and I basically bootstrapped myself until until now and taking a few a few con- contract projects in the way. And really, li- putting myself in the shoes of what it likes, what it feels like to be someone that is pre-revenue, no investment, um, really living in in ways that are very limited. I haven't been on a holiday about ten years. Taking buses, trains, like the cheapest form of everything in kind supports, uh, really. And and what you this mindset of really not accepting money for different things because that does make you it, it can be it can bias the research and it it's very hard to to live that way it's very hard to be living with with so with so little and kind of being on those margins because money isn't something we we talk about a lot in the ecosystem and it's also something that there are a lot of community builders and ecosystem builders and people that are doing community work that is that is unpaid that there is no resources for. It's something that is undervalued, but something that's also very, very, very um, integral to to making this work. And in terms of d- if I have any uh, any strategies, it it's something may- maybe maybe it do, it comes up a number of times about kind of mindfulness and being really aware of your mental health but really there this sort of ecosystem is is a vulnerable place for a lot of people because it is not always very comfortable and there is really no one there to support you if you don't if you are having trouble so okay i'm getting really rambling here but I think really kind of taking stock if you're doing okay um, and to be really aware of your mental health and to be okay with asking for help if you need to. I got to this position of burnout last year and I didn't really realize it that, wa- that I was in it. And I was trying to do all of the things at the same time with, as you said, really little resources and really finding it hard to say no to things, especially if you're a freelancer um, saying or doing a different event. I was on a plane so often going and doing events and speaking for free and helping with different sorts of volunteer projects. And that really took a lot of a toll on me. But I felt like I couldn't say no to doing them because if I'm not there, people will forget about you. You're not part of, of the ecosystem. And as I've really stepped away, you've kind of I've I've seen how that how that works. So there is a lot of pressure to be keeping up with things, to to but also realize you can step away and you can take time to to focus on yourself. And to really reach out to those people that are important to you and to find, if you don't have those people, find them um, because you can't do it alone. And there's a lot of people that will call on you if you're in a position to help them. But when you need help from someone, um, know who you can turn to. Even though you might have a very wide network, how many of those people will be there for you when you really need them? In my case, I found it was a lot smaller than I'd realized. So do find those people, keep, treasure them, keep them close to you because you can't do it alone.
0: Have you learned how to say no over time? And this is a question that's sort of very specific to me. I'm, I'm having trouble with that right now, so.
1: So I get I, this. Is, this is also, and maybe it's also the, the the work work that you do, and also kind of from my perspective, I was always I've always been on this level with these very early stage founders, these founders that I know how vulnerable they are, and I also know that one call or one intro to the right person could really change everything for them. And I was, I'm always been very attuned to that, you know, what I can do, because I know that I'm in a position where I can really help someone. And that's where it became very hard, because it's emotionally draining. Also, that, you know, I found myself, I was doing so much of my work for other people, and I stopped doing work for myself. And finding a place, time to say no is really, really difficult. But it gets easier the more you do it. And what I found is that I was so emotionally taxed by doing all of this, what I call emotional labor or care work on behalf of founders. I still work with a lot of, um, not... A lot less now, early stage startups that are under network founders, trying to help them with a number of different things, but importantly, connect them to people that can help take their, their businesses further. And I realized how emotionally draining that was. And I just had to kind of take a point and step away from that. Because I realized how far I was getting away from what I was actually here to do. There's this kind of phrase, put your own mask on first uh like when you're in a plane and it's crashing and you know they always say put your own mask on first and then help the kids and the elderly people and people that can't help themselves and you really are only in a position to be able to give care to others and to help others when you yourself are in a in a good place and i've realized that my kind of crazy travel schedule and taking on all these different projects projects I wasn't actually taking care of myself and I actually found that the work I was doing and all that I was always saying yes to was not as good as it could have been so it's something definitely is, is a learning process and it's hard um, because a lot of this is, is very public type work but uh, have your own reasons and and don't second guess them and, and take that time if you need to
0: so, you mentioned you've been mentoring early stage companies for some time now. What's the biggest mistake first time funders make
1: so maybe one of the one of the biggest mistakes maybe I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but it's really kind of being naive to what how important the social side of building a company is so just as my dissertation looks at the social practices, those are things that you can't neglect. So developing your communication, how you connect with people, the social the relationships you make with others, some, some of them think, you know, well, I'll just um, build this product and I'll have a really financial modeling will look great and I'll start build this product and it'll be great and then people will want to invest in me. And it's like, well, first you have to develop those relationships with your customers, get to know the customers, develop the empathy with your users, really understand what it's like to, I mean, is this a product that people even need? Um, So understanding that human side of it and not just the technical side. I love working with deep tech founders and founders that are building things that come out of university projects, for example, that are very technical. And that's kind of a a blockage for them sometimes is really understanding that human side of how would a person use this? Oh no, it's a great innovation. People will just invest in it. Well, a relationship with an investor, they talk about it being a marriage, but it's a relationship and you're going to hear and know, even though you have a brilliant innovation. So understanding that social side, and communication is key for that. And that is really important. So how you speak about yourself, how you present yourself, even if it's in a digital way in a or in an interpersonal way, um, that is so important. And that's something I think a lot of founders in Europe don't necessarily, some of them better than others, but it can be a challenge. And especially... Being able to speak with that confidence and that conviction and and really having that fortitude internally to be able to speak about what you do can be really tough. That's the reason why we have pitch coaches and things like that is because that is so important. And sometimes that that's something that can be developed um, quite a bit more.
0: We've been talking about startup communities and government and and, and how Both can help founders, right? But I think each one of us does plays a big role. So, what would you advise someone trying to break into startups?
1: My biggest piece of advice for someone that's trying to break in, or even for people that have been here for a long time, is just spend more time listening and to spend more time learning and really trying to understand what this shades of gray, this whole spectrum looks like. We're very, things are changing so quickly. A business model that works now won't work in maybe won't work in six months, maybe won't work when you move to a different geography. Spend a lot, as much time as possible, really trying to listen to The ecosystem, what people are saying in the ecosystem, but most importantly, listening to your customers, your users, those people are your stakeholders. And something that that I think is so important is if you're building a business, if you want to build a business, it's fashionable, it's become fashionable now um, to be a founder, but it's hard work. And Build something that people want and to really understand what that is. Put yourself in that place. Understand that problem, why you're doing it. If you're doing it because you want to be on the cover of a magazine or you want to raise a lot of money from a VC, that is not the right reason. And I meet lots of early stage founders that that is what they're focused on. They like love sharing the memes of the Patagonia best people. Like they love sharing things like that. That's not what it's about. It's about creating value for people, for businesses, for users. It's not about creating value in terms of a big startup valuation, it's about creating value for people. Do it for the right reasons. If you're there for the right reason, then that's where you need to be. It's not about like be fashionable. It's not about like being cool. And I see that more and more. It's about creating something that people really benefit for. That's what innovation is for. That's what we're here for. And I don't, and don't be a distraction. I think is it's like, it's cool to be a startup founder. It can be, but it's about doing the hard work and, and then I think me, media maybe has a, a role to play too in kind of focusing on the valuations and glamorizing the industry and the events also can glamorize it also. But it's at the end of the day, it's how you create value in helping people. And my hope is that everyone that has an idea that really cares about helping people can have the support they need to make that vision a reality.
0: Thank you so much, Natalie. I'm really glad we got to, to do this.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's been really fun. Hopefully you didn't run on too long. I can talk quite a lot, but it's been a, a real pleasure and a lot of fun. So thanks for having me.
0: Hey, this is Gonzaga. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seat Table podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. Seat Table is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning, and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time. Ciao.